I watched him suffer, and he suffered. I watched him get punished by my mom. It was one of my older brothers, my brother Stan. Now, don't get me wrong, Stan was not beaten by my mom. I should clarify that. He was disciplined by my mom. And the weapon, I mean the instrument of choice, is what every good parent from Oklahoma would use to spank their children. It's a switch. You know what a switch is, don't you? It's a slender piece of a uh, strong weed or a tree branch that would be applied to our bare backsides as punishment for something we did. That's how we were disciplined as kids, with switches. Okies use switches to discipline or to spank their kids. And because we lived out in the country, we were surrounded by switches. Everywhere you looked around our house, it was nothing but acres and acres of woods full of switches. So you would think that being surrounded by these forms of punishment would keep the Magnus kids in line. But Romans 7 is real, y'all. The Magnus kids were and are sinners, and being surrounded by acres and acres of switches did nothing to reform our hearts. And the worst part about getting in trouble was that many times my mom would tell us to go pick a switch that she would use on our backsides. So we had to go out into the woods surrounding our house and find a switch that was suitable and met my mom's standard. So one day, me and my brother Stan were told to clean our room, and I just threw all of our clothes and toys into the closet and shut the door. And my mom came in, and the room looked spotless, and then she opened the closet, and then everything tumbled out. And she just assumed that Stan, the older brother, did it. And so I watched him get spanked. I watched him get a switch applied to his bare backside. I watched my brother take my punishment for me. And he was crying, and then he said those words that still ring in my ears to this day. I didn't do it, Mama. Benji did. (laughs) And my mom stopped, and she comforted my brother. I I just remember her poise in that moment, thinking, I'm about to get it. She stopped, and she comforted my brother, and she apologized to him for assuming that he did it. And then I just had to sit there and wait for her to finish consoling him. And when she finished comforting my brother, my life suddenly flashed before my eyes. And then a switch suddenly flashed before my eyes and landed on my now bare backside. And I'll never forget that day. The reality is that I got lots of switchings in my day. Once my older brother Paul told me to do this. He said, when mom tells you to go pick a switch, pick a real weak, flimsy one. Do I need to tell you how that worked out? (laughs) My mom was not pleased. My mom had standards. When we brought a switch to her, it had to meet certain standards. It had to be firm. It had to be flexible, had to be the appropriate length, had to have proper grip placement. My mom had switch standards. Another time, my brother Paul told me to do this. He said, when mom tells you to pick a switch and she starts to use it on on you, grab it out of her hands, break it in half, and then watch what she does. That'll show her. Listen, Grace, I told you two weeks ago in a sermon that I'm an idiot. So yes, I took Paul's advice. 
I grabbed the switch out of my mom's hand and broke it in half. Do I need to explain what happened next? (laughs) Let's just say that I didn't sit down for a few days. Now, why did my mom use a switch on us? Why did my parents, my mom and my dad, discipline us with switches? Because they loved us. They disciplined us because they loved us. They never beat us. We were never abused. They were never out of control when they did it. They always did it in love, but they loved us enough to use a switch to teach us and to correct us. They disciplined us in hopes that our sore hineys would teach our sinful hearts to obey. And what we'll see in God's word today is that God loves us so much that he disciplines us too. Here's our big idea for today, which comes from the Sally Lloyd-Jones book, The Jesus Storybook Bible. God loves you with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And that's what the preacher is telling the Hebrews in this section of his sermon. Remember the context. The Hebrews were suffering. Remember what we saw last week, that the normal Christian life is one of suffering and hardship and having to to learn to trust God's promises, to trust what he says and not what we see. So it's very normal for disciples to experience stress and suffering in this life. And when this happens... Sometimes it feels like our faith is being threatened because we're being pressed too hard. And sometimes it seems like our suffering lasts too long and it almost feels intolerable. And when we are in those seasons of life, losing heart is a great spiritual danger. When you are going through an extended period of suffering and trial in your heart, it is a great spiritual danger that you might lose heart. This is what the Hebrews were experiencing. And so the preacher is reminding them that God loves his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And because God loves his children this way, he disciplines them. And one of the ways that God lovingly corrects us is through the various trials that we endure. And so the preacher wants the Hebrews to remember this one important truth as they suffer and as they go through trials, that God loves them with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. When God's children suffer and life seems too overwhelming, one of the devil's main temptations and strategies is to try to get us to doubt God's love for us and his care for us. And because the Hebrews were suffering, the preacher begins to address that. So look at Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, and hear the word of the Lord. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In his wisdom and sovereignty, God uses trials and suffering to lovingly correct his children. But when we talk about God disciplining his children, we must never forget that discipline from the Lord is not punishment. When God disciplines us, he is not punishing us. He is lovingly correcting us. His discipline is not punitive because Jesus bore our sins on the cross and God has already poured his wrath out on his son. So God will never punish his children for their sins because he already punished his own son on the cross for our sins. The Lord disciplines his children, yes, but he never punishes them. And the purpose of discipline is not to pay us back or to get back at us for the wrongs that we have done. The purpose of discipline is to shape us and to make us more like Christ so that we grow in maturity and wisdom. The purpose of discipline is that our joy in Christ would be unleashed, that we would enjoy God. There is a redemptive purpose in God's discipline. The Lord disciplines us because he cares for us, because he loves us with a redemptive love, and he wants to make us more like his son. He loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. God wants to transform us, and he often uses discipline to do it. And so the preacher fittingly appeals to the book of Proverbs here to make his point. Remember, the book of Proverbs is what is included in what is called the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. So by quoting these verses and applying it to the Hebrew situation, we come to realize that a father disciplining his children is a matter of wisdom. God in his wisdom disciplines us because he, not us, knows what is good for us. We have no idea what is good for us. We think we know what is best for us, but let's be honest. We're idiots. I'm not the only idiot here, Grace. We're all idiots at times. We're dumb. We're sheep. And we have no idea what is best for us. We think we do, but we have no idea what is best for us. But our Heavenly Father does. And he disciplines us to make us more like Jesus. It's loving correction. And that's really what discipline is. And when you read the word discipline here, think of it that way. It's loving correction. Our Father lovingly corrects us so that we will be transformed into Christ's likeness. Of course, we wish we could just take a sanctification pill and be transformed into Christ's likeness, right? I mean, don't you wish you could just take a sanctification pill and then automatically be transformed? Or we wish we could just read, just, don't you just wish you could just read that verse in the Bible and then poof, you're instantly changed forever? Dramatically, just like that? That's not how it works. God, in his wisdom, in his wisdom, knows how to take us through trials to make us more like Christ so our joy in him would increase. God, in his wisdom, at all times of our lives, is doing what is right and best for us to make us more like Christ, to shape our character, and to build up our faith. 
which is exactly what Hebrews chapter 11 was all about, correct? The saints in Hebrews 11 went through trials and suffering, and it strengthened their faith. And all of this is an expression of God's love for us, his children. Good parents discipline their children. And if God did not lovingly correct us, then the preacher tells us that we would be illegitimate children. But because we are his children, he disciplines us and he does so for our good. His discipline is an expression of his love. And because it's an expression of his love, we must all ask ourselves this morning, with whatever's going on in our lives, the trials that we're suffering, we must ask ourselves what the preacher asks in verse 9. If God's discipline is proof of his love, then we should ask ourselves this. Verse 9, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? If we know that God disciplines us for our good, then shouldn't we submit to his discipline and live? Can you sing these songs, the words to this song today? Jesus loves me this way, I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus lovingly corrects me, this I know. Jesus disciplines me, this I know. Jesus loves me this way, I know. For the book of Proverbs and the book of Hebrews tells me so. Can you sing that today? Of course, that doesn't mean that it's easy to be lovingly corrected by our Heavenly Father. As the preacher says in verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields this peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it's not that his discipline is a walk in the park. In the moment, it's painful. It's not pleasant. It's not easy. When the Lord disciplines us, just like when we discipline our kids, it hurts. So being disciplined by the Lord is not a walk in the park. It's actually hard to learn. It's hard to learn to submit. It's hard to learn to be transformed as we go through trials. It's painful. Paul Tripp calls this the theology of uncomfortable grace. He says, God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Yes, it's painful. God will take us where we have not intended or planned to go in order that he can produce in us what we could never produce on our own. And that's why we go through these trials That's why many of you are where you are with what's going on in your life today because God wants to produce something inside of you and in your heart and your life that you can't produce on your own. It's painful when he takes us to these places. But if we humble ourselves and we trust that he knows what he is doing, then the preacher says it will yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness. When we submit to our Father's lovingly loving discipline of us, It will bring about the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That's the purpose of discipline, to make us more like Jesus. And that's why the preacher then tells the Hebrews to shake it all out and to to get recalibrated once again and, and to get this second wind. He wants them to endure this discipline that they're going through so that they will be strengthened to run the race that they're in. Look at verse 12 now. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
Verse 12 and verse 13 are an allusion to Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3, where Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. We'll actually talk about this more in our next sermon. But what the preacher wants is for the Hebrews to not resist this purifying process of suffering that they are in. He wants them to grow and be changed as they suffer and as they endure trials. He wants them to strive for peace among the church family. And we'll see why in just a moment. Because there are bitter people causing trouble in this church that he's writing to. And so the preacher wants them to strive for peace. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he also encourages them, he says here, to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean that we're called to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Is the preacher saying, work hard at your salvation so you can earn it? Is he saying, you can be good enough to get the holiness that you need to be able to see the Lord? Is that what he's saying? He's not. Let me explain. Verse 14 is not saying that if you don't meet some person's standard of righteousness and holiness, then you won't be saved. The preacher is not saying, you may be a true believer, but you better keep maintaining some standard of holiness or you'll get in trouble with the Lord and lose your salvation, so get to it. And I've heard Christians say that, going around trying to tell, whip everybody into shape. That's not what the preacher means here. And it's certainly not what he's been saying all along in this sermon. The preacher of Hebrews is not giving a standard of holiness that must be met in order to see the Lord or in order to maintain and keep your salvation. Now, of course, he wants the Hebrews to progress in sanctification, meaning he wants to see them maturing and becoming more like Christ, of course. I mean, that's what he said in the previous paragraph. I mean, what Christian doesn't want to be more like Jesus? So yes, the preacher wants the Hebrews to grow in holiness and mature, but that's not what he's saying in verse 14. That's what he said in verses 5 through 11. The word that he uses here that gets translated in English as holiness is best rendered this way, sacrificial consecration. Now think about this. What has the preacher of Hebrews been talking about this whole time in his sermon? Sacrificial consecration. Remember, the book of Hebrews is a sermon, and it has one point, and the preacher's been making one point this whole time, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is the sacrifice, that Jesus is the one who died for sinners. Jesus, not the old covenant sacrificial system, is the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. So this whole time, the preacher has been talking about sacrificial consecration. Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, is what brings us this holiness and this perfection and this consecration and this being set apart unto God. So we're called to strive for holiness, this sacrificial consecration, this perfection that one must have in order to see the Lord. But where do we get that perfection? It's through faith in Christ. The only way for any sinner to be able to see God is to have faith in Jesus' sacrificial death for us. The Hebrews were trying to get it through the law, remember? Through obedience through the law, through their own works, 
through the old covenant sacrificial system. And so the preacher is saying to them, to the church body, strive for the sacrificial consecration that you need in order to be made right with God. In other words, make sure you are trusting in Jesus' sacrifice and not the old covenant sacrificial system. Make sure you are trusting in Jesus' obedience and not yours. That's what he's saying here. Because there are people in that church body who are trying to be made right with God through what they do, their works, through obedience to the law, through the old covenant sacrifices. The preacher is not saying this. Even though you may be a Christian, by golly, if you don't measure up to some sort of standard of holiness, then you will lose your salvation and miss out on heaven. So get your act together. That's not what he's saying. Remember, the majority of this church are Christians. They have Jesus. They have salvation. They can't lose their salvation. In fact, he uses a word here that stresses the fact that they do already have this perfection. They do already have this holiness. They do already have this sacrificial consecration that people need in order to be able to see the Lord. Verse 14 could be worded this way. Strive for peace with everyone and for the sacrificial consecration apart from which no one will see the Lord. Notice that the preacher is not talking about degrees of holiness here. It's all or nothing. You either have this holiness or you don't. The words apart from which or without imply that you either have this holiness, the holiness that it takes to see the Lord, or you don't. And the word that gets translated here as without or apart from which, the preacher uses all throughout his sermon. He uses it in the word that we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 through 40, when he said this, And all these things, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, as we saw last week, the preacher is saying that no one will get a resurrected, glorified body apart from others or without others, We will get them at the same time. All believers will get glorified bodies all at once. It's an all or nothing thing. There will not be believers with glorified bodies for a thousand years while other believers have to wait for theirs. That's his point. It's all or nothing. So with that in mind, and going back to Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14, here's what the preacher is saying. Strive for peace with everyone and for the sacrificial consecration and without it, no one will see the Lord. He's saying, you either have this holiness, this consecration, or you don't. There are no level of degrees in holiness. You either have the holiness that is required to see the Lord, or you don't. That's what the preacher is saying. Without this sacrificial consecration that you get by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you can't see the Lord. So the preacher is challenging those in the church that he's writing to. He's challenging those who want to go back to the old sacrificial system of the old covenant. They want to return to the law. That's who he's challenging. If the preacher is saying that there is a level of holiness that someone must have in order to see the Lord, then how much is enough? How much holiness is required to see Jesus if we start making those standards? How much is enough? 
If we pursue this understanding, then we will have people who will try and come up with how much holiness is required to see the Lord. People will say, you have to do this, and you better not do that, and you better do this, and you better not do that, or you're not going to see the Lord. I'm not sure you're a Christian. That's what people will do. The last time I checked the Bible, there is a standard of holiness that is required to see the Lord, and that standard is God's holy law. That standard is perfection, and none of us have ever kept it or even got close to the standard. Only Jesus has, and that's why he's better than the old covenant sacrificial system because faith in him gives you access to the throne of grace. That's what the preacher is saying here. He's saying, make sure you are in union with Christ by faith. Make sure you are in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works of the law. And then he says, and then pursue holiness, which is what he said in verses 5 through 11. But you don't pursue holiness in order to be made right with God. Should believers strive for holiness? Absolutely. Should we desire to live holy lives? Yes. But that's not what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 is saying. Again, we have to keep the context in mind. The preacher is writing to a group of Jewish believers who left Judaism and left the old covenant behind, but they're now being tempted to return to it in order to be justified. They professed faith in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, but now they want to go back to sacrificing animals to have their sins washed away, to get this sacrificial consecration that they need. And so the preacher is telling them to strive and to fight to believe that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not through our endeavors and not through our attempts at holiness. Look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Verses 15 and 16 here are dependent on verses 12 through 14. They're tied together here. And what you may not see in your English Bible is that there's no period after verse 14 in the Greek. Now, in most translations, there is a period after verse 14, and then a new sentence begins in verse 15, but this is not how the Greek is structured. Verses 15 and 16 are grammatically dependent on verse 14. So in verses 15 through 16, the preacher gives us qualifiers as to what it means to strive for peace and to strive for the holiness or sacrificial consecration without which no one will see the Lord. So verses 15 and 16 tell us how to strive for this communal peace in the church and how to strive for this sacrificial consecration. And so the preacher is unpacking what it means to strive for peace and to strive for this kind of consecration. How do we strive for this peace and this holiness that he talks about? Number one, he says, make sure there's no one in the church who falls short of the grace of God who doesn't obtain the grace of God. In other words, he's saying, make sure there's no one in your church who misunderstands God's grace. 
that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Make sure there's no one in the church who believes that they can get this holiness, this sacrificial consecration through their works. And this is certainly what a good chunk of this church or these churches were struggling with. Jewish believers wanting to get this kind of holiness by returning to the law. And so he's saying, here's how you strive for that. You make sure in your church no one misunderstands God's grace. You make sure they understand that God is as good as he says he is. That the gospel is good news for sinners. That they can't earn their way. And he says, make sure no one in the church misunderstands the gospel of God's grace to sinners like us. That's the first way you strive for it. Second way, he says, make sure there's no root of bitterness in the church body that rises up and causes problems. And thirdly, he says, make sure there's no one who is sexually immoral or no one like Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. In other words, make sure there's no one living according to their passions. Make sure there's no one living according to the sinful desires of the flesh. In unrepentant sin, like sexual immorality, or like Esau who was so hungry he gave up his birthright. Now, you really see these three things that he's asking them to do here because of how he structures it in the Greek. You can't see it necessarily in the English, but in the Greek he uses this Greek phrase, metis. And he uses metis three times to kind of stagger it here to show us. Metis can be translated as not any. So here's what the preacher is saying. saying, make sure in your church body there is not anyone in the church who falls short of the grace of God. Make sure there's not anyone in the church who misunderstands God's grace. Secondly, make sure there's not anyone in the church who is bitter and causes problems. Thirdly, make sure not anyone in the church is controlled by the passions of the flesh. And so what the preacher is saying is that these are the sins that they should set aside. Remember those sins that he talked about in chapter 12, verse 1? The sins that that cling to us so closely? These are the sins and the weights that this particular congregation was struggling with. He wants them to lay these things aside. He wants them to chop these sins off out of the church body so that the church can run the race with endurance. If they consider Jesus, he's saying, if they look to Jesus, they will lay aside these weights and sins, and then they will be able to lift their drooping hands, which he asks them to do in verse 12. Then they will be able to strengthen their knees. Then they will make straight paths for their feet, and then they will be healed and not put out of joint. See, that's what sin does. It makes us spiritually lame. We can't walk when we're living in an unrepentant sin. We're all sinners, we know that. He's talking about people living in unrepentant sin who don't want to change and they're enjoying the pleasures of sin and they don't want to put it to death or cast it off or chop it off. See, when we indulge in sin in that way, we can't walk, we become lame, we can't run the race that we're called to run, as he mentioned at the beginning of chapter 12. Sin puts our spiritual bones out of joint, and therefore we can't run the race with endurance. we be wobbling all over the place. So the preacher is telling them exactly what sins they must lay aside so that they can run the race with endurance. He says to them, when you don't understand God's grace... It will make you lame, and you cannot run the race. And when you are bitter and cause problems, 
it will make you lame and you cannot run the race. And when you are controlled by the passions of the flesh, it will make you lame and you cannot run the race. And so when you take these three things that this congregation was struggling with, what the preacher is actually arguing for here is church discipline. That's what he's doing here by saying there should not be anyone like this in the church. He's arguing for church discipline. He's arguing that we come alongside one another and lovingly correct one another. Now, how countercultural is that? The preacher of Hebrews is telling us that if we allow these things to continue in a church body, we will become lame. If we misunderstand God's grace and think we can earn his favor, we'll become spiritually lame. If we let bitterness continue in this church body, we will become spiritually lame. If we live according to the passions of the flesh, we're not putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God, then we will become spiritually lame. Our spiritual bones will be out of joint as a church. Our arms will droop. We'll have weak knees. We won't be walking on straight paths, and we will not run the race with endurance. So the preacher is essentially saying this to the Hebrews. Love one another. Challenge one another. Encourage one another. Run the race together. He's calling us to lovingly correct one another and to practice church discipline. We're called to lovingly correct each other as God lovingly corrects us. And sometimes God lovingly corrects us through others who are lovingly correcting us. That's church discipline. And that's always the goal of church discipline, to win people back to Christ, to see them restored to the church community, to lovingly correct them so that their joy in Christ is unleashed. Listen, Grace, God loves you with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love, and sometimes he uses other people to lovingly correct us as proof of his never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Jesus loves me this way, I know, for the preacher of Hebrews tells me so. And so the preacher is reminding the Hebrews that they need to ensure that church discipline is happening in their church family, where people are lovingly confronted and held accountable for their rebellion and their persistent, stubborn sin and unrepentance. What he's talking about in verses 12 through 17 is church discipline. And what word did the preacher use nine times back in verses 5 through 11? The word discipline. Duh, we can figure that. I mean, I know we're idiots, but come on, we can see that connection, can't we, Grace? Nine times he's already used the word discipline. He's unpacking what that looks like. He's continuing his thoughts on discipline in verses 12 through 17. Preacher doesn't want there to be anyone who fails to obtain the grace of God. He doesn't want anyone to misunderstand God's grace. And he doesn't want there to be people who are being controlled by their passions and they're unrepentant. And he doesn't want there to be anyone who lets a root of bitterness spring up. This is actually a reference to Deuteronomy 29. Listen to Deuteronomy 29 verses 18 through 19. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant... 
blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The preacher alludes to Deuteronomy 29 here. Because the context there fits his context here. He's warning the Hebrews, like Moses warned the nation of Israel, against becoming bitter in heart and against feeling safe while living in unrepentant sin. The preacher is saying that the Hebrews need to guard against this bitterness of heart in people. And so how do you do that? You employ church discipline to win someone back who is going along that route. Did I say route? Route. Route. He's trying to encourage them with the love of God to endure. Because what happens when you go through trials? You can become bitter. Bitterness does not promote harmonious relationships, does it? Have you ever been around a bitter person and you thought, I can't wait to hang out with him again? And that was good. No, you don't do that. You don't want to be around bitter people who spread their poison Unless you're a bitter person too. And then you're like, I'll be in the bitter people club. Yes. Understand this, Grace. Bitter people cause trouble. That's what the preacher says. Listen, if you are a bitter person and you're bitter towards someone here at Grace, bitter towards someone at work or in your neighborhood or in your family, you will cause trouble. And you'll defile other people with your bitterness. And you'll suck them into your bitterness and then they will become defiled and your bitterness will spread like a disease. But that's not what God wants for his children. It's not what God wants for his church. It's not what God wants for his bride. He wants peace. He wants to see fruit. He wants to see his children becoming more and more like Christ and having our joy in the gospel unleashed. And so this section here in Hebrews 12 is all about how we as a church family help one another to be strengthened. So that we can run the race. That we help one another but to lift our drooping hands and to strengthen our weak knees and to make straight paths for our feet and to not be lame or put out of joint, but rather to be healed. This is all about church discipline. It's about God loving us through other people. Paul Tripp says, There is not a day when every member of the body of Christ does not need to be taught, helped to identify those remaining artifacts of an ungospelized worldview. There is also not a day when we don't need to be admonished, confronted with the fact that we still look into the world's carnival mirrors and carry around distorted opinions of who we are. We need a protective circle of grace-motivated admonishers. Every day there is a war fought for control of your heart, but your jealous Savior with the zeal of gorgeous, redemptive love, will not share your heart. He will not rest until your heart is ruled by him and him alone. That's what this section of his sermon is about. It's about our need of this protective circle of grace-motivated admonishers. And the key here is grace-motivated. Listen, there are always, there are always self-righteous people in a church who want to be the fruit police and go around self-righteously trying to make sure everybody stays in line. I haven't seen any fruit in your life. I haven't seen any fruit. Maybe you're not a Christian. Better get together. Always people like that. Always going around trying to check everyone's temperature. Are you all hot enough on fire and zeal for the Lord? I don't think so. I don't see it. Always people like that. They bother me. I'm sorry. That's just my heart coming out here. 
We don't need those kind of people here. We need them here to repent and then to come back to the Lord and focus their eyes on Jesus. But we need grace-motivated admonishers who are aware of their own sin and who love people and want to see them restored back to Jesus. It's true. There is not a day when every member of the body of Christ does not need to be taught and helped to identify those remaining artifacts of an ungospelized worldview. There's also not a day when we don't need to be admonished and confronted with the fact that we still look into the world's carnival mirrors and carry around distorted opinions of who we are. And God has given me and you this protective circle of grace-motivated admonishers right here in this church, in this church family. So look around. What a gift God has given you. God gave all these people here to help you, to love you, to encourage you. So get plugged in and get to know people. Be loved on. Be encouraged to love and follow Jesus. And why has Jesus given you this church family, Christian? This protective circle of grace-motivated admonishers? Because your Savior loves you with the zeal of gorgeous, redemptive love And he will not share your heart. He will not rest until your heart is ruled by him and him alone. God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. And the proof that the triune God loves you with this gorgeous redemptive love is that Jesus was punished for your sins. Jesus died In your place, Jesus paid it all. And I think that's worth standing up and singing about. So let's do that. We'll pray. Father, thank you for your love that is relentless, that you relentlessly pursue us to bring us back. Thank you that you will not rest until you have our heart. Thank you that you come and rescue us through your word and through other people. Father, if there's anyone here today who's running from you, rescue them. If there's anyone here today who doesn't understand your grace, Father, rescue them. If there's someone here today who's bitter, rescue them. If there's someone here today living for the passions of the flesh, rescue them. Help us, Father, to be a church of grace-motivated admonishers for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name.